0: Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Ego and Carlos Inis Show. This is your host, Faj, and uh, we're in episode 11 of this series, and we actually haven't recorded one in the last three weeks. The U.S. Open is in the books. Uh, our last episode was after the Cincinnati final, and uh, Damien is back here with me uh, on my left, and uh, yeah, let's get right into recapping the U.S. Open. How was the U.S. Open as a whole for you, Damien?
1: Um, I mean, as a whole, for me, probably the first week was very exciting. Then you had this big, big, dull <laughs> set of matches. You know, where everyone, every favorite, was winning very lopsidedly. There were a lot of matches where, um, like the better baseline player dismantles the one-dimensional one. Uh, I don't think Shwante Caracas really uh, come into this, but well, Shwante lost very, uh, lost a bit early, I guess. If you if you wanna say something like that, at least compared to her ranking, her expectations, the, the fact that she was defending the title, obviously she didn't do it. And the same for Alcaraz, but at least we got a bit more matches there. And I guess for both, there are a lot of storylines to talk about.
0: Yeah, I think the tournament as a whole delivered more in terms of the narrative. And that's so in terms of the quality of matches, if that makes sense. Because I, yeah. I, think, I, I think on the men's side, apart from Zverev and Sinner, I can't really think of many high quality matches. I guess maybe. Medvedev... Cipa Stryker. Cipa
1: Stryker. Yeah, yeah.
0: I guess in the second week. I mean, in the first week, you had, you also had Dimitrov Mocha, and you had, you know, the first two sets of Dimitrov's bear were pretty good. You had, you had the Stricker's. Oh, yeah. Of pass, yeah. First, uh, first two
1: sets, yeah. I, you know, so, yeah. some matches. Yeah. I, I guess yeah, you're right. The, the first week was
0: definitely more in terms of if you're looking for high quality, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Funny enough, the first week is where it was, but, um, but just in terms of in terms of this matchup, obviously, what did you think coming into the into the match actually? Uh let's start with that, because obviously, you know, Medvedev's first six rounds and you know him coming through from a set down against Diminor and then beating Rublev in those insane conditions in the heat. And then for Alcaraz, obviously he lost just the one set to Evans. Uh and he looked pretty good up until that. That point, of course, uh, you know, it was relatively straightforward against Zerev. Zerev obviously had that physical war against Sinner. But uh, but coming into the match, I mean, did we did we really give Medvedev any chance? Like uh I, I certainly wasn't expecting it based on their first two weeks yeah. this
1: year. All logic pointed to Analkaras win again. Uh there was a certain part of me who just said, um, you know, Medvedev is so good on hard courts. How can you actually just try them off completely? You know, can we do that? Can we do that? And then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, Alcaraz just has a perfect skill set for you know abusing what Medvedev is doing with his returning position and also in the rallies even. Uh, however, uh, I did feel like maybe if uh, Medvedev can keep it just a bit close, sort of start asking the questions and force Carlos to maybe come up with, um, well, well, play smart and under pressure. Because still, the executing all the tactics in the method of matchup, I guess, takes something out of you. Uh, if you're Alcaraz, you know, you have to play with a certain like clarity of mind. And I think uh, I did not expect uh, that moment to be at six all, three all in the tiebreak. Like, I did not expect that this was all that was needed, uh, which maybe sort of tells me that Alcaraz also entered this matchup thinking, okay, I'm the big favorite here. I should be winning this. Because basically Medvedev saved like what two break points in the first set, then he serves extremely well, gets to a tiebreak, three all in the tiebreaker, and uh, Alcaraz just loses his exactly that clarity of that that he has to play with. He has to sort of un- understand what he needs to do. He plays that weird drop shot for like five three or something, and. Oh, yeah. uh, yeah, and I he yeah, like he said in his press conference right? that he
0: just he just lost his mind after that, and you yeah. could see that it had carried over to the second set where he was just really really poor. And yeah, just... S-
1: second set was just a was was just a result of the first one, absolutely.
0: Yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting dynamic. I I thought the only chance Medvedev would have is if he got past the first three four shots of the rally. That's what I felt like. Okay, okay, if he gets into that baseline pattern and if he has an outstanding serving day, that's the only way he can actually keep it close. And second was definitely
1: true. That's kind of what
0: ended up happening. I, I feel like because I looked at the stats, I went back and saw like Akras won 31 out of 42 of his servant volley points, which I guess is not a bad ratio. And even in the third set, he won 10 out of 15. But I guess it's just some critical moments where the servant volley really failed him. And Medvedev was able to get enough depth and enough width on his returns from actually not even adjusting his return position that much. Maybe just anticipating it, maybe just moving to the right, cheating a little bit for the white serve. Maybe I felt like in the deuce, and then I felt like on the ad, uh, on the ad side, Alcaraz maybe overdid it, where he just kept going to the, he kept going to that play over and over again on the ad side, where I feel like it's a better play on the deuce because at least you know Medvedev's giving you that chance. Why not do it every single point? But on the ad side, it's like you know at least if Medvedev finds the backhand, he's gonna, he's gonna be in a fairly decent position even after the first volley, and that that actually kind of played out in many situations.
1: Yeah, and I think in the fourth set, especially, uh, there was that two-three game where Alcaraz got broken, and this is yep. where he really like went overboard with it completely. And so I, he had I, seven I, game
0: I, points in that game. Yeah, yeah and, and, and,
1: and I cannot really blame him for this, you know, because I know that um, he basically was reacting to the fact that he couldn't win baseline points against like, Medvedev. Yeah. So I think that's why he started 7 volleying pretty much every point. And you're right yeah. that on the on the um, you said obviously it's not as effective. Also, uh, I feel like his placement on the serve wasn't that great, which sort of mm. is shown by the fact that he did not hit an ace in an over three hour long match. And yeah. uh, by the time he started overusing it, he was just going there sometimes on serves that were really in Medvedev's control, um, you know, mm. um, comfort zone. Um this is a great tactic if you're using it sort of spontaneously. You hit a you hit a great serve, you see what what where Medvedev is. Yes, you you absolutely should do it. I mean Djokovic won what every single servant volley point or like yeah, almost I think 20,
0: 20 for 22 but very close. Like, yeah. At, at
1: the, they were at the end, I think. And like yeah. um he basically won almost every server volley point, whereas Alcaraz at some point, yeah, he just decided that he doesn't know how to win points any other way. So he has to start overusing it. have made him overuse it, I guess is the right way to phrase it. And he paid the price, obviously, um, which, um, yeah, in that 2-3 game, especially in the fourth, I think was this was very visible that he just has no other option anymore. And this, this is not working out um, anymore. So, so yeah, that was a very surprising matchup for sure. Uh, I mean, the, the, the way this played out. And it kind of shows us that you know maybe the next match will be something completely different. That it's not just going to be ten wins in a row from for Alcaraz from now, and and that's good. You know that makes this matchup uh, suddenly very spicy and gives Alcaraz another rival, I suppose.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, obviously Medvedev's favorite major is the U.S. Open, and that's where he's had his most most success. So that's where I thought you know he would maybe have. Like it's not that surprising if you think about it that this is where it's come. But then it is very surprising that he managed to sustain that for three sets. And and I think I don't know about you, but like I, I just I could not think of a better match better that was played. You know, deep into against them, Uh you know, I, I mean the only one that really comes to mind is like the, the final that he played against Djokovic, but he got a very kind of emotionally drained and physically drained version of Djokovic that uh that this one is like the most impressive for him to come back from from losing that third set, and then even the game that he helped serve when he saved those three breakpoints, I think it was at one all, right? He had Alcaraz at fifteen forty, and then he also had one more break point, and uh, and and then on the third one, Alcaraz hits this uh, backhand drop shot. Medvedev actually covers it, and uh, and then comes up with a really good backhand ball, right? And uh, actually, in that game, I don't actually think Alcaraz did that much wrong um he missed this one lob I think that was the first break point he missed the he missed the lob a little bit long but it was a good play and then like the next the next one you have Medvedev hitting a 125 mile per hour second serve uh right into the body which I guess was this is where I feel like Alcaraz make Medvedev pay enough is you know Medvedev should not be winning 50 percent of his second serve points after hitting 10 double faults I feel like uh Alcaraz could have done a little bit more on the on the return, and sometimes I feel like his approach was way too aggressive on some of those second serve returns. Even the first break point he missed from the first set, I feel like it was another second serve error off the off the forehand. And this is where I feel like Novak and Alcaraz are just a little different. Where like Novak, you know, he's just gonna get the return in deep, and then he's gonna hurt you off of maybe the fourth or fifth shot. Whereas Alcaraz is gonna be so he's so aggressive minded that he's just gonna go after it on the on the right from the second serve tournament. I just feel like even in the baseline rallies, uh, he wasn't patient enough. And he was pulling the trigger way too early on a lot of forehands. Whereas, uh and, and then he was getting burned by Medvedev's backhand down the line because Medvedev had an exceptional day in hitting his forehand cross court and hitting his backhand down the line. And those are the two shots you kind of need to beat Alcaraz right now. I guess Djokovic does that really well and Sinner does that really well. and Pretty much all of his losses this year have been if you just pin out to the forehand side, yeah, you're also pull, going to get a lot of errors.
1: Um, I see the pulling the trigger pretty early, but at the same time, it wasn't doing any damage. Not really. <laughs> uh, he, I, I, I'm, I can't remember the exact amount that he had of like forehand winners of the ground strokes, but they, they really weren't, um, you know, uh, coming up so much for him. And um, I I think there were also some um, patterns or like uh, moments in Alcaraz's footwork that kind of told you he might not be 100% at the same time, Mm -hmm. like the backhands that he was not really like using the full body thrust to them, you know, he was not really, um, he didn't have that momentum, he didn't have that impact. I, I don't know like this is this hard is to something say that we, yeah it's it's, not... it's 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 hard to say this is not science at some point I thought that maybe he's just so frustrated that he's not setting up for that shot at all uh, then he actually played a few great points in a row to to like get himself out of some trouble in the second set eventually losing the game anyway. Uh, so it's hard to say. There's always like arguments this in this set and this set, right? I mean, in terms of tennis, it's it's never one player. Yeah. Well, it's, it's very rarely one player played a poor match. The other played a, or or the other played an amazing match. It's usually both. Uh, but yeah, Medvedev certainly one of the best wins of his life. You know, also because of how people didn't believe in him. I mean, including us. Uh, even if I had this feeling of unease that medvedev is you know, one of the best hardcore players of this era and maybe even all time and why are we put why are we not counting him um like um, mm-hmm. as a potential threat to alcaraz i still felt like this, he has no chance <laughs> whatsoever so so i think uh yeah this was a super important win for medvedev it's just a shame he wasn't able to back it up i'm not saying with a win in the final i don't really you know, care who won but uh just with a better performance just with a I don't know, five-setter or a tight four-setter, something that would really get us going and uh, make this US Open final sort of worthwhile. Make it worthwhile for him to destroy the Alcaraz Djokovic dream, you know, which I don't think he really did uh, at this. uh, I mean, I don't think he made it worthwhile.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think the final was all about the second set. (laughs) He just had to win that set. And once he didn't, it it was basically the was under the sales was- then
1: let's let's see what happens right and djokovic only has lost once from two sets to love up obviously against Jürgen Melzen and I'm not saying this is something that would maybe come into play because let's say Djokovic was again like after the second set kept being like really tired but if he gets three sets to play against Medvedev he's probably gonna manage to like conserve his energy somehow for at least one of them. So so yeah losing the second set for Medvedev in the final just seemed like game over. And it was, and by that point I was very disappointed with the, uh, well, not really with Daniel's effort, because I guess he was just a little too tense in the key moments in the second, but just with how the final turned out.
0: Yeah, for sure. It seemed like the tactic for him was try to outlast Joker Yeah, physically. <laughs> and that just isn't really gonna get it done most of the time, like, I mean.
1: And, you know, we don't know if he like got into the final with this strategy, but I think at some point he realized that this is probably his best shot today. But obviously, that needed a second set uh, win, and also, like you know, the way he was playing against the Serbian volley, Djokovic was also much weaker than against Alcaraz. You yes. know, there were so many passes where he just plays at him, basically. Um, obviously, the most famous one is the set point, but many others. Uh, he could not find angles on the passes, like whatsoever. And uh, I guess that's mostly nerves. Also, his technique definitely doesn't help, but I guess Alcaraz, he was doing okay with it, I guess, a few times. And um, he's not the worst passer in the world, definitely not.
0: I'm kind of torn on the set point because on the the one hand, I'm like, the down the line was open, but then on the other hand, I'm like, if you have ever played, you know that, like, if he's anticipating cross, uh, you know, you're gonna, it's easier to hit it there because Djokovic was just, he guessed correct. Oh, it was it was like, an
1: easier shot. It was an easier shot. Yeah. I don't think the down the line corridor was as open as people sometimes no. say. Uh, but saying, it yes. was it's... still the correct play, I think, to sort of risk it there. Yeah. Because a shot there would have been risking it. But yeah. I think that's he, what he played, it, needed he played the to safe one. He also didn't really play it cross, like he sort of just played it down the middle at Djokovic. Like I I don't really think he played it fully cross-court either uh which is which is I guess why yeah. i'm why I'm sort of um disappointed with that shot. I think if it was maybe yeah. a sharper angle cross court, maybe something w- could have been done, but yeah, down the line would have still been the correct play, but I don't think it's as fail safe as people tend to um, you know paint it as
0: yeah sure. uh i mean and then just going back to the semi, i mean I feel like there are just so many moments where you know, even, even in the fourth set where this match could have just flipped, like, right in the right in the last game, obviously, when Medvedev hit those two double faults in a row, and then all of a sudden Alcaraz gets one of the returns back on another breakpoint, and Medvedev's forehand barely kind of lands in, and Alcaraz just misjudges it, and he just gives him a gift with a backhand on the line error, and then, you know, then there's like the, the, the there's just a couple of too many forehands that Alcaraz missed in that game, when Medvedev kind of gave him some openings when he was getting tight in the last game, but it's I feel like it was just, it was just not meant to be for for Alcaraz. And he mentioned in his press conference, you know, very mature press conference, and he he talked about how he's just he thought he was mature enough and ready to handle these moments, but he's just not, and he just has to get back to work. And I feel like he will just learn from this and probably become even stronger, right?
1: Yeah, it's a good learning experience. And it, it feels a bit weird to say that you know about a player who has two slams already, but he is 20 after all. And yeah. I think uh whatever really happens until the end of the year here, uh it, whether he finishes number two, number one, or I don't know, number three. If someone someone would have gained some insane points, maybe he doesn't win a match until the end of the year. It's sort of okay because he won Wimbledon, right? Yes. This loss would be really hurtful if he didn't, uh, because then you sort of start thinking, okay, I don't know, maybe he has um, a lot of baggage now. He doesn't really, because really Wibbledon made it okay. He has two slams by the yeah. age of 20. Any season from now, we'll be looking at him as, well, if he doesn't win a slam, it's a surprise. So yes. basically, I think uh, everything is fine until the Medvedev match. He played a great event, I thought. Um, there was that um, Evans uh, third round, which was pretty exciting just in terms of the shot making and how much they also you know, had fun with each other on the court. Uh, against Arnaldi's verve, he didn't really give them any shot of winning the match. The first two rounds were obviously easy. So so yeah, as you, as you said, I think the press conference was great and and he definitely uh, can use that as a learning experience. We'll see how, how he manages to do that. But yeah, perhaps he just needed to get through something like this.
0: No. And I guess even that Medvedev had to play a 12 out of 10 to, like he said in his on-court interview, to, to get I the view in the end.
1: But. I think it's a little, like, was it the best match of his career? I, I am kind of struggling to see that.
0: I don't know, but I think in the majors, like, I can't think of a better match. He's played like,
1: I it think I think them. he slightly overrates his performance. That that's all I'm gonna say. I, I think he did play extremely well. This was very like a, a monumental victory for him mentally, for sure. Uh, but I think he slightly overrates his performance.
0: Maybe yeah, I don't know. It's it's a good debate because I can't really think of any other. Standout victory, I guess you I mean,
1: could say. Yeah, but th- there's been a lot of like cleaner, you know, victories for him, which I aren't guess. going to be as memorable, right? So it's hard to compare these. When when he outplays someone, you know, wins in three sets, plays excellent tennis from start to finish, and then you're like sort of, um, well, you're n- you're never gonna think of that much. When you're gonna think of you know a four-setter or a five-setter late in a slum, right?
0: I guess it was kind of reminiscent to like a twenty fifteen Wimbledon situation where it's like Federer comes out and he plays a brilliant match against Murray, like one of his best. Uh, you know, um, that's
1: sick. Like that, that I would I would put as like top ten Federer performance actually.
0: Right, and then and then so everyone comes out expecting like oh against Djokovic it's going to play out very similarly, and if he brings that level against Djokovic, you know, but that's not how matchups work, and we yeah. we know how that is, and it's very difficult to play two really all time greats you know back to back like that. And and have the same result, and I think that they've kind of done that here.
1: Yeah, yeah. And he and he like only really stole a set against Djokovic there, which was uh, also wild well yeah. to think about. That he basically could have been straight set it easily there. So that that would be even strong and even stronger comparison to this. <laughs> but yeah, Federer Murray. It was I guess it was a similar match in that yeah the the opponent was actually still playing well, but yeah. the guy who peaked and, and really peaked in that one, I think. 20 aces and like 36 winners to 10 on first errors, I think. Otherwise, not counting the aces. So, so, so yeah, I guess it. I guess it's a pretty good comparison. Yeah,
0: yeah I think I, I think Medvedev is just, you know, thrives in that role as a disruptor in terms of like if you think about like he just wins Rome, and then he's the number two seed, <laughs> and then he just loses in the first round, and it's like he just has many moments like this where I just feel like you know he just disrupts the narrative, and then he just it's gone after that. But uh, but interestingly enough, I mean, yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is, like, the race for number one, obviously, which is, like, the next talking point, but
1: yeah.
0: I think I read today that Djokovic isn't going to play the Asian swing, so I think that gives Ooh. It gives alcaraz an, an advantage because he's, I think, only 700-something, less than 800 points behind in the race. Uh, for number one. And so, if he can make up that ground with having a decent agent, so he doesn't even have to win Beijing and Shanghai, but if he can just get enough points to overtake Djokovic, I guess, then it would be an interesting comparison. Turin.
1: Maybe you could have, yeah, maybe you could have a nice finish in Turin, uh, which Alcaraz still hasn't played. He still hasn't played in the ATP finals, which I guess will be one of the more interesting parts of his year again. Um, obviously we've had the slams, we've had some ATP 1000 success, but I think playing the ATP finals for the first time will also be uh, quite huge so that's coming in like uh, two months.
0: Yeah, and I, and I do expect him to have a, a stronger indoor finish. Uh,
1: than last year? Last year,
0: yeah. Just because last year he was also struggling physically and it was right after winning winning his first major and he played the Davis Cup and this year C-Spartley pulled out of that event so yeah. I think he can rest and you know, still have a good good finish. But I, I think it's a good time now to switch over to the women's side. Uh, and I, I mean, just first three matches again for Iga, it's like very routine, just like very, very similar to all the other slams, apart from the, the second, was it the first round or second round against Niemeyer? At the Australian uh, Open, that was the... the Australian Open, first round, first round, first. Round. First round, yeah, that was the only time where Iga was in, in any jeopardy in any of the first three rounds in a slam. Uh, The rest were all either like bagels, breadsticks, or like, you know, I don't think any tie breaks even, or any six, any seven fives, apart from that one match. So we didn't really learn anything like usual in the first three rounds of of Fiontech. But then comes up the match against Ostapenko. A lot was made going in, 0-3 head-to-head, but a lot of us thought that, okay, you know, Fiontech is a different player now. That was before she was world number one. The... That was before the last loss that she had before the thirty-seven match win Street. and so you expected that this time around it would, it would certainly be be different, and Iga would. Iga is deservedly the big favorite going in, and she plays a great first set, and, you know, some moments in the second set too, she played decent, but then it all really falls apart for her, in that third set, and, I think that's what we have to talk about here because, it's all. It all went downhill from for about those last eight or nine games, even towards the end of the second set. And then really the the lack of fight in the third set, I would say. Because yes, Asta Pickle played tremendous. She took the racket out of because hands. But then Ico was not really able to respond. And yeah. we had a situation where, you know, it was it was kind of disappointing, I guess you could say from over number one. I hope I'm not being too harsh, but that's what I felt.
1: Yeah, of course, Ostapenko can beat anyone on her day, and she has a 4 0 head head-to-head record against Iga. But the previous three matches—I mean, they came before the thirty-seven win streak, which is sort of where we can like put a, um, you know, a certain like um, key moment in Iga's career and sort of start counting from that. Sometimes, which uh, made me think that this time, while Ostapenko can absolutely beat and has a, I mean, has a decent matchup for sure against Djokovic. Um, you know, the 3 zero head-to-head is not as important really. And I, I remember um I, I usually don't do that, but I was actually listening to the pre-match interview with Iga coming onto the court, and I, I think it was Renee Stubbs or someone anyway, asking her about um that head-to-head, you know, a very natural question, like what are you gonna do today? And basically Sviontek said that she's uh, she's got she's got a plan, let's see how it works, but obviously she cannot really uh, you know tell tell that to us now. And then when she entered the court and actually started playing, I never truly felt like she had a big plan, you know. It was to, I guess, to out-hit Ostapenko. It was to hit even bigger than her, you know, hit her off the court. Which, um, I don't know if that was that wise, you know. There was, uh, I guess it's okay. There's been players, like Rubakina has an excellent record against Ostapenko, for example. Maybe it's easier for her also because of how she serves, You know, that's why it's sort of easier to overwhelm her with just how heavy uh, the shots are. Uh, With Sviantek, it's not going to be that that easy, especially with Ostapenko abusing her second serve. But um, yeah, definitely the the only thing that we can really feel disappointed with is just, again, the lack of ability to try to change something up. The lack of ability to, um, yeah, just just mix it up more and change up her strategy, force Ostapenko to play something new. Uh, which she didn't have at all, yeah. And in the first set, it, once Ostapenko got on to that level where she was just overwhelming, you got, there was no coming back. There was no uh, even like a spark that would tell you, okay, she is she's still in this. She's going to try something else. There were, I guess, a couple of like short slices that brought Ostapenko forward into the net. I'm not sure how intentional they were. I
0: think I saw like one slice.
1: I don't know if I can... Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure how intentional they were, but I think that there were a couple of attempts. They were successful with memory serves right, too. Maybe that was something to play on, you know, just, just mix up the rhythm in the rally. Uh, maybe force Ostapenko out of her more, most comfortable position, which, just like for Chiontek, like, it is definitely the baseline, or like for well, Ostapenko, I guess. A bit um, in into the court as well, but definitely not uh, much forward, not not the forecourt. And um, yeah, I I just feel like the strategy of out Ostapenko was very very uh, basic, was very uh, optimistic, and was just sort of relying on Ostapenko not having a wonderful day at the office, which she which she certainly did. And as we all know, this was like a perfect Ostapenko in a nutshell run, with her then having an abysmal showing against Kukushov. <laughs>
0: Yeah, um, like, I think there's one key moment in this match where if I look back and I'm like, hmm, maybe this changed things because it was in the second set and Ostapenko was serving at 5-3 and got had a break point and she had a second serve and she'd been doing a decent job up until that point winning second serve points on Ostapenko because yeah. Ostapenko does have one of the weaker second serves on the WTA Tour and then she kind of overthinks the backhand and just like misses it wide and when I saw that miss, I was like, "Oh, she's not going to win today," just hmm. because like it was it was perfectly central, like there to be attacked, and the down the line was open, and she chose to go cross court on the return, and she just missed it wide. It was the wide miss that just made me think, "Oh, yeah, this is uh, this is going to be tough." Well,
1: yeah, um, there, there's also that this thing that. Um... I mean, you, when you would think about like the best movers on the WTE tour, who would you currently name? Like Sviątek, Gov? I guess yeah. that, that's the main two answers. And I think this event sort of made it clear that uh, while maybe, you know, the sliding for you guys is much stronger, but in terms of like pure speed, you know, the way Gov was able to play play Ostapenko one more, uh, make Ostapenko play one more ball in the quarters. Svyantek does not really have that. I'm not really saying she should. This, this this isn't like her natural play style at all. But that's why, you know, just when Ostapenko got onto that level, she wasn't really able to out-hit her and she wasn't able to make her play enough either. Um, we, we've said it a few times, but maybe this is really where uh, Svyantek would have to think about and her team would have to start thinking about introducing some of the variety that she used to have in her game you know at least something to maybe uh, not rely on consistently but at least something to uh, potentially look for if there's trouble uh actually this was really accidental but i uh watched um it showed up in my youtube notifications i think and i watched some highlights from igas run Garros 2020 run And uh, I have to say, her playstyle was a lot more exciting to me back then. Um, Yeah, yeah, I mean, the the dropshows that she was playing against Halep, for example, uh, I was really like watching this, you know, on the edge of my seat, even though it's a replay from three years ago. Uh, I'm not saying this is how she should play all the time. Of course, this was also more effective on clay. Uh, But it's good to have more tools in your repertoire. They sort of made Iga this machine that is really like one-dimensional and, and just thinks about mm-hmm. coming out there and destroying every ball, basically ball bashing at some points. And um, it's working, obviously. She is the world number two. She's won a slam this year. Uh, but I, I am kind of, kind of starting starting to doubt uh, whether, especially at other slams that run Garros, she's going to like keep having enormous success if something doesn't change. You know, this year sort of tells us as much. She loses to Rybakina, she loses to Ostapenko, some of the big, biggest hitters in the game, which is where her strategy of just blowing the opponent off the court could be um, troubling. Obviously, second serve is still a weakness. I don't think, I don't really care about her first serve. I think she's gotten it to a point where it's acceptable for sure. Um, I, I don't really understand that criticism, but second serve for sure still. And against, um, of course, against Vitorina at Wimbledon, she sort of loses against a good counter puncher who had an aggressive mindset on the day as well. Um, so, so yeah, if if something doesn't change, I I kind of um, am struggling with the idea that she's gonna win many more slams outside of RG. I think
0: so that variety point that you're talking about and re- incorporating a few more different books and spins to, towards her. Opponents, especially big hitters, like she has been working on this in practice. Like when I was watching her in Cincinnati, yeah. I was watching her, you know, practice a lot more slices, a lot more volumes, even some drop shots. And I saw that in the media week, also in the at the U.S. Open in the in the practice week. And I think she just doesn't feel confident enough to bring it out in a big time match right now. It takes. That would time. be my guess. It takes think, time,
1: absolutely. Yeah. I,
0: I think that is actually something they're going to focus a lot more on during the off season, and I, I think we we might even see it next year. Like that's 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 kind of what I'm. Thinking and hoping, and maybe even slightly expecting, but uh,
1: that's good. I mean, that's exactly what I want, basically. Uh, and I think <laughs> they, they have been sort of responsive, right? The tech team to to what's happening. Uh, I know there was a point in two thousand twenty two when everyone was saying uh, like they're not reacting to the fact that everyone is crushing the return against Iga. But at some point, you know, with time, the serve improved for sure. With some it's, with time, as you said, uh, I heard this about uh, practicing. I didn't actually see it, but I heard that in practice they were uh, trying to sort of change things up. Uh, a, a famous Polish commentator said something like, um, "You know, it, it's stupid because how do you then expect them expect her to play this in matches?" Which is what you said, uh, right? That um, yeah. it just takes time to introduce it, it in matches. It takes time to have
0: the confidence to. Yes, to be able to pull that out, especially on big points. Like I just wouldn't expect it to come like immediately. They've just started working on it as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, I'm not yeah. expecting it to be tomorrow either. I'm just expecting yeah. it to be you know, at at some point in the future. And uh, I think you know they, they kind of had to at some point realize that they sort of have to look for something. Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, after all, this coach coached uh, Agarwal so obviously, like, there has to be some. <laughs> There has to be some, you know, some of that in her game, but I think, at some point.
1: like Yeah, uh, there is a fun argument that someone uh, made to me. Um, I can't remember who it was. Um, I'm thinking could it could have even been my dad, <laughs> but I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but basically, uh, someone told me that, uh, you know, Viktorovsky worked with Radvańska for so many years, and he's sort of trying to make the entire Advanska with Szwontek. Uh, mm-hmm. Which I, I guess there is some truth to it, you know, in the sense that Radvańska was never, you know, she never wanted to like bulk up, you know, play stronger. She always wanted to rely on her skills, you know, on her court craft. And with Świątek, basically eliminated all of that and just wants to make her this, you know, ball bashing machine. Uh, there, is some, there is some truth to that. I, I don't think, you know, this is how it's going to continue. I think, you know, knowing Viktorowski's expertise, I, I think he's way too smart for that. However, uh, yeah, uh, there is. it's a, it's just a funny way to look at it, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think, and also while that third serve was going on, while we saw Iga panic a little bit, I think yeah. the first serve that you're talking about, that that actually was there still in the first couple of sets. Like, I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, she was hitting her spots decently well, where she wasn't getting totally crushed on the first ball. But then in the third set, like, her her percentage kind of stayed the same, but she just wasn't hitting those spots anymore. She was just kind of just getting it in. And her first serve was getting crushed. She only won three out of 13 points in the second set, uh, in the third set on, you know, at, at that point, I think once she lost the break, it just, you know, there was all for all in. four
1: service games for right?
0: me. Yeah. And she went down, she went down five love. And at that point you're like, just hoping she doesn't get babbled <laughs> because that she could, they salvage something of the match. but it was just, I also just think like playing Ostapenko at night and those conditions, uh, if that was a day match, you know, like we saw against golf, I know that um Ostopenko was definitely not happy with the scheduling and in, in some ways she was a little uh it was a little unfavorable of course for her. I mean she still had 36 hours to recover for the for the golf match. But uh you know I just maybe that was a too quick of a turnaround, but also it was just the the perfect slot for Goff. Like I think to play her in that heat. And uh, just knowing that she's just the superior athlete, you know, and just that she can she can just totally outlast her outlast her and just diffuse her power. But we also saw, like you were saying, that golf just has more ways to, to kind of, um, diffuse that because her raw speed and athleticism is just it's, it's just the best that there is. Like in terms of speed, yeah. if, if they were like running a race, I think she'd crush yeah. everyone right now at this point. And we saw that in the final also against Sublink over. It's just
1: the running is the final. Just won
0: that match, you know
1: yeah the running in the final i i honestly have never seen this from a women's tennis player i i, I don't think so like the, the the balls that she was getting to maybe part of it is the anticipation as well but i yeah some some of these set, second set third set points against Sabalenka. i don't think i've ever seen a, a women's tennis player chase down balls like this I, I...
0: yeah so certainly uh, i mean it'll be interesting to see when they when they play each other again but yeah, it was it was just so stark, you know, just watching us to paint over, you know, 36 hours later and just make like 36 unforced errors and a lot of that due to go off speed, but even then like just, you know, not even be in the match and it was it was just over in a fly. Like it was so quick that I actually missed like much of that match just because of, you know, I was I was expecting to come back and then and then see see them locked in at like three all, four all and it was already six oh two 0 Like it was it was crazy how quickly it just flew by. In those day conditions and to some to some extent you know I think they also had to put it in the day just because I mean also Goff and her team like really lobbied for it and it made sense in terms of the terms of the TV I guess the,
1: Yeah, the, the, there, the, the scheduling just... you know is something that people bring up a lot. Um when Sionte Gostapenko played at night it was the Labor Day weekend right so that's yeah. where it's usually swapped. So I don't think it was really a decision that was made to um make Ika struggle. You know, the, the yep. other days around that time, they were also like this, where the usual primetime match would be in the day session, and then the, the usual yeah. daytime match would be in the night I think, session.
0: I think that scheduling made sense. I think people were just perplexed by that, that day with, like, the Shelton and Shelton Tiafo and, the, and they thought that the Iga Coco would be at night instead of the Kirstea Mokova.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah yeah the, 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 this is good. this is a day that kind of didn't make sense actually kirsten Mubova, yeah. i guess at night but but the day with chyonte kostapenko made total sense because that's yeah that's where they usually swap the uh, night night session and day session matches
0: but i've also just never seen a women's quarterfinals where like all four losing players go down the five in yeah. the first set it's just it was just wild to me that it was it was the yeah. same thing for, for all the matches um, it just
1: and it was the same thing as well, I mean, on the women's side, as, as we are talking about in the men's event, right? The yes. first week, quite exciting. Then forefront, maybe yes, but then from the quarters onwards, did we really get any classics? Sabranka keys, of course, but. Um, and the final will be memorable. It wasn't that amazing, but it will be memorable. But the yeah. quarter final stage especially was where uh, the tournament just felt very uninspiring. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's kind of funny, though, that the Mira-Andreva match, which I was expecting to, would be much more competitive. and ended up being you know, one of the straight set matches for golf. But it's hmm. funny how that plays out sometimes.
1: I wasn't expecting her to struggle on that one. I don't know, just felt like on, on hard courts right now, it's not going to be an issue. But she definitely struggled a few times when I didn't expect it. That's for sure. Right, like,
0: like the Sigmund... Sigmund,
1: the... Mertens, yeah. yeah uh, but... but she did, you know... I think I think she really got a lot of confidence out of that warm up swing and just was clear enough um, to really handle everything that was coming at her. And I guess that's what she did. You know, she really managed the match as well while not really hitting her peak peak level. I would say that Goff played much better in the warm up swing than at the U.S. Open, and and yet she's still the champ. Three out of four titles in the last three four events. And this, by the way, before this year, she only had one WTA title, right?
0: Two, uh, the two, two before uh, this year yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i think 2021 she won one on clay in Parma, and then i think yeah 20, 2019 in Linz. actually there she was a lucky loser but oh day. 19
1: i oh, yeah i forgot about Linz, yeah yeah right i was only thinking mm-hmm. about that clay one but that's sakari that only has one uh right on clay and i go go for it too
0: and I just started to think, like, the more I started to think about it, I'm like, I looked at Goff's year and ranking every single year, and I was like, okay, she went from 68 to, like, 47 to, like, 22 to, like, 7. And it just feels like, you know, she just kept getting incrementally better. And I think maybe we just expected way too much from her early. and It was just, it was just unnatural to think that a 15-year-old, you know, should be expected to win majors, like, right the next year. It just It just wasn't going to happen. But I just... You know i was revisiting that six month stretch and i was i was just reminded again of just how impressive i guess that period from like wimbledon breakout to the 2020 fourth round loss to canon i was like okay there was a lot in there actually that's you know i had actually yeah. forgotten a little bit about it Was
1: Leeds, which i just forgot about was was part of it too uh winning yeah. that title as a lucky loser actually beating ostapenko as well in the final and yeah, yeah yeah i i get it uh there was so much hype that you know we are just all expecting a title very very soon at the Grand Slam stage. But maybe now we're actually gonna get that rivalry that you know people were so excited mm-hmm. for, that people have been so excited for for years. Shwantec uh, goff right now it's 7-1 for, for the poll. But uh maybe right now this is this actually becomes that rivalry where they are the top two players of the world. Uh it's it's possible.
0: Yeah and I think that whole chat about having the big three at the WTA and the top the first half of the year like it's it's kind of not a thing anymore like it's just it's i think we're past that now like looking at the last two slams and all the big events it it feels like actually there's a pretty strong top eight like i feel like the top eight is one of the strongest ones we've had in a while like when i look at the consistency and just like with Mohova being in there, as well as Jabour, as well as Van like actually. Well, because really well.
1: Mohova and Van Der are now in the top eight ranking boys as well. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a huge gap between them and then Sakari Garcia, that's for sure. Yes. Garcia, the... I mean, she, she's not even that high in the race, I guess. Sakari is also at 15, but but yeah, when it comes to the, uh, but, but then when you look at the WTA race, I guess you have like a bit of a top seven with Jabour in the eighth place and then yeah. keys, then so yeah I think in both rankings there's a big gap between the top eight uh, which is the same by the way for both rankings uh, mm-hmm. but just in, in a different order uh, there is a big gap between the top eight and the rest yeah I would agree with that
0: whereas I feel like on the on the men's you know it, it is like a, a stronger top three and kind of it feels like everyone else has has quite a bit of work to do in terms of in terms of catching up for different reasons because obviously everyone was struggling physically and I think Yeah, you know, mid sitter had the the tough loss in the fourth round, but I just I feel like some of the other players have to have to start stepping it up a a bit in terms of you know closing the gap, and that makes the race, I guess, more interesting on the men's side in terms of who will actually qualify, because there's going to be some good players that are just not going to be in the in the top eight.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Uh, On the men's, it kind of feels like there's a top three, and then there's the seven next players. uh which are all fairly similar in strength too
0: that's what it feels like where it's like they could lose to like four through ten could just lose to anyone on a given day and it's it yeah it'd be like well they're just closer in level with those guys than, than the top three
1: yeah, so if, yeah if when i'm looking at the rankings it's like it's like like from rune to zverev that's the the sort of four ten group in the official rankings not of the race yeah and the that's definitely um very, very similar in strength. There's no difference between Runez-Varev realistically right mm-hmm. now, especially,
0: yeah. and so I, I mean that that about does it, I think, for this episode of the UN Post and show anything else kind of u s. open related, big picture related that you wanted to touch on?
1: Mm-hmm not really i mean uh she also lost lost the number 1 ranking which i guess we need to talk about yeah oh, we didn't even mention that, yeah, <laughs> even mention that. Uh, i just realized um Arina sabalenka will be the new number 1 player i guess yeah. if we if you asked me before the us open you know who's the best player of the year i maybe would have said sabalenka but it would have been a consideration right now that's not really a thing anymore probably which is which is a bit weird that you know only one event and one that she didn't even win uh, does it? But you know, she has a she has a lead in the WTA race of like what 700 or something points? No, 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 not 700. More, more 11, 1100. 11, uh, That's Alcaraz that has um, 700 deficit to Djokovic. So 1100. Almost another parallel. Almost. Almost another parallel. Yeah, 400 points not away. Quite, no. I don't know if, if 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 this is really a goal that Sviontek should care that much about, you know, to, to reach the number one ranking by the end of the year. It would be cool, definitely. There is still a possibility for that. She's playing Guadalajara, which she wasn't last year. There could be a lot of points lying around there. We'll see how she handles the conditions at the WTA finals two years ago. Uh, not her best event, but this was also before that, you know, threshold, before that that uh, 37 win streak, I guess. And uh, she was she was also struggling like mentally there, right? So so I, I'm not saying this is going to be uh, again pretty poor for her or something. So yeah, there's there's still a lot to play for definitely in that. Uh, and Sabalenka is dropping to 2,000 points at the Australian Open, but it would definitely be best for Shvedtik to like not look at it all that much, which I guess is also part of like her statement, right, that she put out after the US Open yeah. about like not trying not to defend, but maybe rather to conquer from now on, to 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 win titles rather than to defend them, which uh, you know mindset wise obviously is the right um, is the right sort of um, idea. It's just whether she will be able to like implement it and truly have it in her. And that's that's up to her, really.
0: Yeah, and I think she's she's kind of better suited in this role, maybe as you know, finally having to chase because after being number one for 75 weeks, I, I think it was just at some point the streak was gonna was gonna end and it's just now it's it's up to her to kind of get it back and she has a chance of doing it. So I think uh but but in terms of her schedule, like we don't expect that she'll play the Asian swing, right? Because, I, mean, like, I think she I think she
1: intends to but yeah if she goes deep in Guadalajara it's going to be tough to play Tokyo after that so I don't know but I think the, it, it is her intention right I, from what I remember yeah. I think she she pointed out Guadalajara and then Tokyo possibly but yeah I think if she if she goes deep in Guadalajara then we might be looking at a potential um withdrawal Because isn't
0: there like the WTA calendar I just I don't have it memorized but like isn't there one more masters of enemies in china um, like, i think there's yeah I, I think there's there.
1: beijing so so yeah. so so she she basically is expected to play the asian swing one way or another it could be just Guadalajara i i mean for now you know the plans for her are guadalhara tokyo beijing right and then of course the wta finals and the king cup finals but um this could be an issue again with the stupid scheduling and mm. the fact that if yeah, she it's... if she goes deep in Cancun then it's going to be tough to make it to the Beijing King Cup finals um, but we'll see about that where are the Beijing King Cup finals because I keep forgetting <laughs> but it's it's Europe anyway right Seville or something okay, that like Seville maybe Is Malaga Spain yeah it's in Spain for sure I think Seville maybe uh, okay. but, but anyway it's in Spain yeah anyway and and yeah she's going to fly over from Cancun it's easier. Uh, I heard that from than uh, Fort Worth to uh, Glasgow. Like it, it's definitely a lot easier, but it could be an issue again. But that's really you know if she if she doesn't compete at the Beijing drinking King Cup finals, and some other top players don't compete. Or like last year, you know, Pegula comes in and has to sort of wait a few days to be at her best. Uh Yeah, again, it's it's not going to be the fault of the players. It's going to be the fault of the WTA, but. But yeah, for now, her plans are Guadalajara, Tokyo, Beijing. Um, obviously, that can all change depending on how deep she goes. It's a shame there's no Ostrava this year, right? That that yeah, seemed I like a great defensive. So, yeah, was,
0: that was such a good one.
1: And she's not playing in San Diego, which you're probably uh, not too thrilled about, but uh, that, that yeah, would have been tough, I still, tough I still for see her.
0: So. her I, I see her posters everywhere from, from last year, like on the <laughs> circle. Okay. I was actually speaking to Anz today, and she she mentioned actually watching Iga win that last year and thinking I want to, I want, to, I want that surfboard and that's your motivation as the number one seed this year.
1: Yeah, and so, and yeah. it's I guess it's a bit of a question like is it worth it to hold the WTA 500 right after the U.S. Open? But looking at the field, it seems like it actually so is. I was
0: I was, at, I was talking to some people in the mm-hmm. today, and they were saying that they're, they're planning on having this WTA 500 in San Diego the week before Indian months, which makes
1: so much mm-hmm. sense and
0: it would, it would make the field a lot stronger. And actually, the field is not so bad this year, considering it's the week after. Like it's yeah, it, it, it's, it's definitely better than top, I would
1: expect, yeah. Like
0: nine of the top 20 is better than I would have thought. I would say yeah. going in. like last year it was 17 of the top 20, but also it was a week before World Lahore, so yeah, it was a better and, a better, and it was in October, day. I guess, mainly, which there was enough time. And
1: what's usually before Indian Wells? Then, um, okay, just a couple of 250s this year, Monterey and Austin. Yeah. So yeah, that would be a huge one for for uh, San Diego, I think, um, unless yeah. actually players don't manage to fly over from Dubai, but most of them should. You know, it's only really the finalists that. Um, yeah. That will have be a like hard time. To
0: like we have the Acapulco, Indian Wells, Miami stretch instead of the WP, would be San Diego, Indian Wells, Miami, right?
1: Yeah, and I guess Dubai or, or Doha actually next year is a, is non mandatory as well. So some players could just skip it too. I don't know, but yeah, um, sounds interesting for them to, to, to change the date to that. Uh, after the US Open, as you said, I, I would expect a weaker field than it is actually.
0: But, uh, but yeah, I think. Uh, we covered pretty much all we had to. Shriantek Alcaraz really did, as well as Big Picture for the US Open. And we actually hit on a number of other players too. So I think this was a pretty productive episode and we'll definitely be back with more. But, but thanks as always, Damien, for joining me.
1: Thank you. And shout out to Vansh because he was really exhausted and really <laughs> wanted to go to sleep. But I forced him to do it. And I think he did uh, still extremely well. I don't think he really noticed that at, uh, at the recording. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think it just shows that tennis gets uh is once you get the adrenaline going and, and you have tennis, then it's it's actually hard to fall asleep. Yeah. But uh yeah, so you know, leave us a review on iTunes. That's always really helpful in terms of the podcast and you know, share it with your friends, tell everyone you know is interested and just uh yeah, keep staying in tuned and check out their the Twitter page as well and uh, yeah and you know you know the rest so with that I guess we'll we'll see you next time